0: Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter one. <clears throat> a little sore throat this morning. Okay, so two weeks ago I began a new series of messages based on the Gospel of John. I look around the room. Was it nobody likes this section? Everybody wants to be on that side. That's a, so I'm going to be like a windshield wiper today. I'm going to be doing this as I preach. So we began a new series on the Gospel of John. Uh, we'll be working our way through it a bite at a time. Sometimes it'll be small bites, sometimes it might be big bites. Uh, last week, um, I skipped over verses 6 through 8 in chapter 1, so we're going to take a look at those uh, today. So if you're open to John 1, Please follow along as I read verses 6 through 13. Let's see. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives a light to everyone but born of God. So Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth, the power that's in your word. Lord, I pray that your word today would have its full impact on us. And Lord, I ask that you would use me uh, to that end. Do it, Lord. Amen? So John the Baptist, let's take a look at John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. We're introduced to John the Baptist for the first time, at least in this Gospel. Um, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name is John. He came as a witness to testify concerning uh, that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now remember verse 7. Verse 7 is significant. He came as a witness to testify. He came as a witness to testify. It's going to be my main point today. Hold on to verse 7. I'll work my way back to it. These verses, 6 through 8, are somewhat surprising as you read through chapter 1. They seem to break into the flow of the text. They seem sudden and somewhat jarring. Um, if you left them out, it would seem like, from a, from a writing perspective, it would seem like, you know, the rest of it would flow nicely from verses 5 through 9. Verses, verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then, and then verse 9 says, it picks up here, it says, the true light that gives light to everyone who was coming into the world, that kind of flows nicely, right? But for whatever reason, the gospel writer, John, in his infinite wisdom, decides to stick these three verses, 6, 7, and 8, in between those two statements. In between those two statements about Jesus, John inserts verses 6, 7, and 8 about John the Baptist. By the way, take notice that in in this gospel, um, he never actually calls him John the Baptist, he only calls him John. If there were a label that we would attach to John the Baptist, to to this John that we're referring to, not the author, if there was a label that we would attach to him, I would recommend that instead of calling him John the Baptist, though that's a fair label, he might better be labeled as John the witness or John the testifier because that's more accurately what he did, and it's certainly what these three verses are Highlighting about him as opposed to him baptizing people. So John, John interrupts the flow. Look at verses 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify. Why did he come? As a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. In fact, 14 times in this gospel, the word witness is connected to John, John the the testifier, John the witness, John the baptizer. And witness meaning one who testifies. And guess what? Further down in the same chapter, it happens again at verse 15, just like out of nowhere, the gospel writer inserts verses 6, 7, and 8 in between and kind of interrupts the flow with, with this, the mention of this, this pivotal character, John the Baptist, he does it again at verse 15. He interrupts the flow again. I mean, in fact, it's so jarring that the New International Version, in printing it, actually puts parentheses around verse 15. It seems so, so jarring, so interrupting, so out of place. So verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And then verse 16 says, Out of his fullness, the promise just referred to in verse 14, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. But verse 15, again in parentheses, interrupts those two verses that seem to flow so nicely together. It says in verse 15, John testified, there we have that word again, concerning him, he cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So, so who is this John? Who is this John the Baptist, this John the witness, this, this John the testifier who's worthy of such interrupting a mention? Let's let's take a look at him. Well, from verses six to eight, we know a couple of things about him already. Um, we get at least two questions answered. The first question being, I just asked, who is this John, this Baptist witness testifier? Well, he was a witness. He was a witness sent by God to testify to the light. And so, why did he come? Well, to do just that. He came as a witness so that we might believe. And there's a little bit more of John's backstory and. I'm going to talk a little bit about him. I think you might find this extra information uh, valuable. John, not the gospel writer, but John the Baptist, was a forerunner of Jesus Christ. He and his mission were fore- foretold by the prophet Isaiah and also by Malachi. Or if you're Italian, it's the Italian prophet Malachi, but that depends on how you want to pronounce it. So Isaiah forty thirty says this of him. It says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make street in the desert, a highway for our God. That's Isaiah 40, verse 30. Malachi 3, 1 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come says the Lord Almighty. And then those two Old Testament prophetic promises are confirmed in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Matthew very kindly just connects the dots directly to the um, to the prophecy given by Isaiah. Now John came from an interesting family. His father, Zechariah, was a priest, and his mother was Elizabeth, who was a cousin uh, to Mary, the mother of Jesus. That makes John and Jesus second cousins. They were related. Some commentators seem to have question about this? I don't know. It just seems clear, pretty plain and clear to me that they were related as second cousins. Um, both Zechariah and Elizabeth were descendants of Aaron, uh, the bro- brother of Moses. So they, they, John comes from a family, a priest, of those who would serve God in his temple. It's also worth noting that prior to John's birth, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, his parents, they were barren. And they were barren into their old age. So John's birth, it was miraculous. It was, it was unusual. Just Mary gave, uh, was impregnated um, as a virgin by the Holy Spirit. Well, her cousin Elizabeth also had uh, miraculous surroundings to, to her child's uh, conception as well. Let me, let me uh, read that account to you um, from Luke chapter 1. Verses uh, 8 to 17, it speaks of John's miraculous birth and how it was also foretold uh, by an angelic visitation. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving his priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then... prepared for the Lord. Wow, what an incredible experience. What an amazing, amazing thing to happen to Zechariah. There's more to the story. I encourage you to read it in, in John chapter 1. But how cool to have the, the birth of your son in your old age when you're thinking, hey, it's too late. We can't. This is impossible for us. And an angel comes and tells you that your wife's going to bear a son. And then it happens. Clearly, John's conception The announcement of his birth, this is surrounded with a heavenly activity and with the miraculous. By supernatural decree, John's birth and his life purpose were set. He was to be a prophet. He was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. Luke chapter 1 ends in verse 80 with this verse, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly uh, to Israel. So that gives you a little bit of insight into his birth. John also had a unique style and a unique diet, I thought was maybe worth mentioning. He was an unusual man for his time, maybe unusual for any time, but Matthew 3 verse 4 tells us that John's clothes were made of camel hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. I'm thinking he didn't get too many people coming over for dinner, you know. So John's occupation was a prophet, He was a Nazarite evangelist. And he spent his time preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And just like Jesus, just like his second cousin Jesus, who would would be born just just a few months after him, he too had a contentious relationship with the religious people of his day. Matthew 3, verses 5 to 12, 12, tells us a little bit about this. This conflicting, contentious relationship that he had. Speaking of John the Baptist, it says, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the tree and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And with fire, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Oh, man, you got to love John the Baptist, right? I mean, hey, if, you're, if you like the old-time religion, if you like hell, fire, brimstone preaching, John the Baptist is your guy, you know? He's, he's going to give it to you in spades. If you follow me on Facebook, I put this quote up yesterday by Tyler Johnson from One Glance Ministries. This is what he says. He says, if the gospel you believe is good news to the adulterer and the thief and not the Pharisee, you're probably on the right track. (laughs) If the gospel you preach is good news to the adulterer and the thief but not the Pharisee, you're probably on the right track. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel of John, it wasn't good news to the Pharisees then or now. But the prostitutes, the drug addicts, the thieves, the adulterers, they loved it. John the Baptist was the last of the old covenant prophets. Jesus said, truly I tell you, this is in Matthew 11:11, speaking of John the Baptist. He says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And in in somewhat poetic terms, Jesus is, is saying that John's of the old covenant, but in the new covenant, even the least in the kingdom of God in the new covenant is greater than this amazing man, John the Baptist. Other little miscellaneous bits of information about John. He's mentioned in all four Gospels, And and in Acts of the Apostles. As a matter of fact, he's referred to 90 times uh, in the New Testament. His name means the grace of God. And he he died young. He died at 35 years old. He was beheaded uh, by order of King Herod. So that gives you a little bit of backstory on John. Let's look at at what I think is the uh, highlight moment of John the Baptist's life. And uh, let's go back to John chapter 1. And we'll take a look at verses 19 to 31, speaking about what I think, in my humble opinion, has to be the highlight moment of his life. And so I'll read through that section, stopping to make you know, some brief comments. <clears throat> Verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony. OK, remember, he came as a witness to testify. Right now, this was John's. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him uh, who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. For John, it was unthinkable that this attention would focus on him, because he knew he wasn't the Messiah. His job actually was to point to to the coming Messiah. Then they asked him, "Um, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. It might be easy for the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to associate um, John with Elijah because of his personality um, and because of a promise that they held onto from Malachi 4, verse 5. I don't think you have that verse over there, Errol. But it says this. This This is one of the prophecies that the scribes and Pharisees would hold to. It says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah before you, that great... Uh, before that great and dreadful day uh, of the Lord's coming. Um, Remember when the the angel showed up to Zechariah, he said that he would come in the spirit of Elijah. So there, and there's, on the scribes and Pharisees' part, they're expecting Elijah himself to come. So they kind of misunderstood, you know, the Lord's intent. But certainly John was the one being referred to and he came, as the angel said, in the spirit of Elijah. Uh, so, so if he is the forerunner of the Messiah, then he is Elijah. In a sense, John John was Elijah, or more accurately, a type of Elijah, ministering, ministering in that same type office, in that same spirit. Are you the prophet? This refers to God's promise through Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15, promising a prophet to come. Based on this passage, they expected another prophet to come. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. But he answered them, no, I'm not this prophet that that you're referring to. Finally, they said, who are you? You're not Elijah, you're not the Messiah, you're not the prophet. Who are you? And he said, um, Finally they said, to whom are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So John sees himself as, as the advanced man, as it were of the King of Kings. His baptism was a preparatory cleansing uh, for that royal visitation. The Jews in John's day, they practiced a form of baptism. It was the outgrowth of ceremonial uh, washing. But the Jews of that time typically reserved this kind of baptism for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So to submit to John's baptism... A Jew had to identify themselves with Gentiles. This is a pretty big deal. It was a sign of of genuine uh, repentance and humility. It was no small thing. Back in John 1, verse 24, Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? He says, I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And you have to understand, the untying of the straps of the sandals was the, act, was the action that took place just before foot washing, and it was the duty of the lowest slave in the household to untie those sandals. When, when John makes a statement, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, um, he's, he's indicating the difference between the Messiah who's coming and how he views himself from from that perspective. Verse 28 in John chapter 1 says, all this happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where where John was baptizing. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Powerful, powerful encounter. I'm so grateful that we have multiple Gospels that we can turn to because Matthew chapter 3, verses 17 gives us additional details of of John the Baptist's encounter with Jesus. Let me share that with you. It's profoundly significant. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, verse 14. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. Scripture says, verse 16. At that moment, heaven was open. And he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and a line on him. He saw. We're talking about John the Baptist, John the witness, John the testifier, right? At that moment, heaven opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and a lining on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Who? Incredible details. What an incredible encounter to get to witness up close and personal. I've baptized people, right? I've, I've officiated wedding ceremonies. You know, I have the best seat in the house when that happens, right? When the bride and groom stand right here in front of me, I could see if there are tears are in her eyes and the smile that's on his face. I have the best seat in the house for these special events. I baptize people, right? I get to look into their eyes as they go under the water. I get to see the, the light on their faces as they rise up out of the water. John, the witness, the testifier, he's got the best seat in the house. He's right there. Front row, eyewitness to one of the most incredible moments in all of the Gospels. And I think it's so incredible t- incredibly telling that, that it's the first thing that happens as Jesus begins his public testimony. And please just don't skim over this as you read the Gospels. This is incredibly important. He's setting a tone here. He's communicating a profoundly significant value for us to understand how God is relating to man. I love this scripture. I love when scripture gives gives testimony, gives commentary to other scripture. And that's what Matthew 3 is doing for John 1. So John's been given this incredible privilege and honor. A profound voice from heaven. I love this incredible statement of the Father in verse 17. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. This is what the Father says about the Son. Do you understand this? John is standing there. He gets to experience the Trinity. He, gets to, he is actually facilitating the baptiz- baptism of the Son, and he watches the Spirit come and gently, like a dove, rest upon him, and he is the voice of the Father. He witnesses the loving interaction of the Trinity, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And what does the Father say? Even if you miss the significance of of Jesus choosing to humble himself and be baptized, even if you didn't have eyes to see in the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit comes and rests on him like a dove, what does the Father say? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Take note of this. Jesus hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't done one thing. He hadn't preached yet. (laughs) He hadn't healed the sick yet. He hadn't cast out any demons yet. He hadn't performed any miracles yet. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. And yet the father loved him and was well pleased with him. On what basis is this love? On what basis is the father's pleasure of his son? It's on the basis of relationship. And he makes it very clear in the statement. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You get he hadn't done anything yet? And the father was pleased with him. Oh, this is my son with whom, whom I love and with him I'm well pleased. The father's pleasure is based upon relationship and not about performance. The Father's pleasure in the Son is based upon the relationship that they've always shared together. It's not based upon Jesus' performance. How can it be? He hadn't done any of the things he came to do yet. He hadn't done anything. Not one thing is recorded of Jesus' ministry prior to this. The Father's pleasure in the Son wasn't based upon what he did. It wasn't based upon ministry. Do you get that? Please get that. It will set you free. because it was true of Jesus, and it's true of you. The Father's pleasure and delight over you isn't based upon what you do, isn't based upon how many church meetings you go to, or how many chapters of the Bible you read this week, or how many hours you spent in prayer. Not that any of those things are bad things, but it's not the basis of his pleasure over you. He's pleased with you because you're his son, or you're his daughter. That's why he's pleased with you. It's the basis of relationship. Father's pleasure wasn't based on performance then, and it's not based on performance now. Remember the, the verse I, I shared with you from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 last week? I mean, most of you know this verse. It says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, not by works, not by performance, so that no one can boast. The Father's pleasure wasn't based on performance then. It's not based on performance now. You know, the, the message that too much of the church preaches that says, God's good, you're bad, try harder. Right? Anybody familiar? God's good, you're bad, try harder. That's not good news. That's what everybody else tells me. I don't need a God to tell me he's good I'm bad, try harder. I get everybody in the world telling me that. There's no good news in that. You know what there's good news in? You know what the gospel is? God's good. He loves you. And it is finished. That's the gospel. And that gospel is good news. That's really good news. That's the good news. That's the foundation of our faith that will set you free. And what happens here? In John chapter 1, what what John gets to testify about, what he gets to witness is this love relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit at the very beginning. This is my Son, whom I love, with Him I'm well pleased. That's good news. That's good news. That's good news for you right here, right now, today. There are some people here today, you feel like 10 pounds of sin in a 5-pound bag. You know what the Father says about you? He says, you are my Son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. He said, you are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is not based upon your performance. It's not based upon how much you qualify as a sin manager. If it was based on us, we would fail every time. It's not based on us. It's not based on how good we are. It's based on how good he is. He's that good. His love for us is that complete and that unchanging. That's good news. Because that means I can come to him on my best day, but I can also come to him on my worst day, and his heart toward me is forever the same. People, that's good news. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we embrace as his followers, as believers. That's good news. The Father's pleasure was based on relationship. Then, and it's based on relationship now. So back to John chapter 1, verses 32 to 34. Then John gave this testimony. John the Testifier, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one on whom I will baptize, is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So remember I told you i get back to verse 7? Verse 7 says, John chapter 1, He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through Him all might believe. So that tr- through Him all might trust God. John the Baptist, John the Witness, John the Testifier, the early witness to the fact that the Word who became flesh and dwells among us is this Jesus whom he had the privilege to baptize and on whom he saw the Spirit descend like a dove. And not only that, he testifies to, he witnesses the relationship shared among the Trinity, The the Spirit descending upon the Son as the Father declares his love and his pleasure, that's John's testimony. That's his witness. The love the Trinity has for one another, the relationship they share, and it's dramatic display. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, the Father, Spirit, and Son was setting the tone for Jesus' entire earthly ministry with this public display of mutual affection. Can you see it? Can you see it today? The word believe from verse 7, that all might believe. That word believe comes from the same Greek word I mentioned, Greek word I mentioned last week. Pistis, <clears throat> meaning trust. I want that relationship. I want it. I want in on this circle of perfect unity and purest of loves. That's what the word, that's why the word became flesh and why he dwells among us. Do you want that? Do you want in on that relationship? Do you want in on that circle of love? Do you want to participate in that? Do you want that to become the reality of your life? Do you want to be set free from a performance-based Christianity, based upon your works and not God's works, based based upon your discipline instead of grace, based upon law instead of love? Do you Do you want in on that? I want in on that. I need that. But I need that good good, that good news. I desperately need that good. Good news in my life. Look, I've been a Christian for 37 years. I've been a pastor for over 28 years. And with all that effort, with all that work that i put in, I still can't accomplish it. If that's the measure, even after a lifetime of work, it's not good enough. <laughs> Ask Nadine. <laughs> She'll tell you. But it's not about me. It's never been about how well I perform. It's always been about what he did. Amen. This is my beloved son. Can you hear? Can you hear the, the, the pride in the most positive way in the father's voice? I can imagine me saying, this is my son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I love him wants the whole world to know. Let's pray. Matter of fact, let's stand and pray. Who needs today, who today needs their concept of Christianity or their relationship with God changed? From a performance base to a relationship base. Do you need that? Anybody need that today? Anybody been doing this on performance base and you want it on relationship base instead? If that's you, then pray with me today. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Truly, we come before you. We come boldly before your throne of grace. In the name of Jesus because of who he is and and what he's done and the way that he's made for us, we come before you, oh God. And Lord, we ask that you would give to us the fullness of the freedom that was won for us on Calvary's cross, that we'd not live one second longer under the burden of works, under the burden of performance, that we'd not live another day Another hour, another minute under the burden of the law, of the religious rules and regulations of men. Lord, set us free into the full truth of the gospel. Lord, set us free today that we would live in the fullness of your love that's already perfect. That's already ours. Lord, I pray that we would know that you love us. Lord, I pray that today for every man, woman, and child here today, that you would reveal to us in a way that we recognize that it's you just how great your love for us is, just how perfect your love is for us, just how complete your love for us is, oh God, and that we be burdened no more, not another day, under the yoke of slavery. One more time. Do it, Lord. Lord, this is truly a God-sized thing. This is truly something only you can do is, is change a human heart, is change the thinking in a human mind. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the loving relationship shared between Father, Son, and Spirit, and that we would enter into that perfect unity and that purest of love. Make it so, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. I love you guys. We love you too.